And guys, welcome to the Beautiful Boxing Podcast. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of going to enjoy this episode because I've said it for a while and it's rare that, that you get direct evidence that the things I say come true. So for years I've been telling people that the Eddie Hearns of this world will listen to the podcast. Now, Frank, I don't think Frank really knows or cares what the hell a podcast is, so I don't think Frank listens. But the younger the younger cohort of boxing royalty, as the fans like to call them, do listen. And the reason you know they listen is I will say something, and as soon as I make it okay to, to discuss things in those terms, everyone seems to jump on it. Like, I remember the notion of, of people being cornflake crunches and that sort of thing, and no one really wanted to to touch that because it was disrespectful to fans. But once that took hold, you know, Eddie was happy to jump in. And I have no issue with that, you know, because it's not exactly like I create stuff. I just tell you what I think. And I'm sure other people think it at the same time. I just say, look, the aim of this podcast is we start a discussion. And wherever that ends up, it ends up. You know, that's what it is. It's, it's discussion and it's entertainment. That's the beauty of a podcast. But Eddie does an interview on IFL, and we're going to have some discussions today around some of the stuff Eddie says and does, because it, it's revealing the playbook of Hearn, because he hasn't got any distractions, he can't hide behind anything now, there were no fights coming up, Hearn can't hide behind anything, so all he has is that classic Eddie Hearn slash matchroom playbook. Now, now, I'll give you an example of that, so if you listen back to the episode I did with Martin and Andy, the reunion episode... We make it very clear that boxing has moved on, that small hall boxing is dead and so forth. Because it is, and it's obvious for anyone to see. No one's been brave enough to discuss it. I know Carl Greaves is trying to make a defense for small hall promoters still having a space and a say in boxing. But the reality is fans just need Eddie, Frank, a Mick Hennessy perhaps, and an MTK. And, and people will notice I left the, the Dennis Hobsons and the Steve Goodwins off, and that's not because I'm anti those guys it's like i said with social distancing the model falls the model does fall apart a bit and as a result of that we have to look at new ways of doing boxing i'm not talking about radical revolution i'm just talking about some common sense adjustments that every fan and every participant in the sport know needs to happen right and here's an example i'm just going to drift into into Eddie doing what Eddie does best, if I'm being honest with you, because I think it's easier that way. Yeah, yeah, I just don't like the conversation, to be honest with you. I don't like... Yeah, I feel very, very awkward about going to a fighter and saying, I know some, some promoters are going to prey off it, but I can understand if it's a, if it's a run-out job. But I want to get rid of the run-out jobs in these, in, now. You know? So now we're saying that in the short term, we want as many British fighters on the card as possible, right? For logistical reasons. So rather than you having a run out against a 10-rounder against Lucas from Poland, why don't you fight Dave from Manchester, who's 10-0? and 0? That's going to be better for the sport, right? It's going to be better for British boxing. Because small hall boxing right now is finished. Until Gates return... Small hall shows will not exist. It's impossible unless people are prepared to lose tens of thousands of pounds. Okay? So those fighters that are on the small hall shows will be saying, oh, I'll step up, take a risk. 
you know, like I just said, Dave from Manchester, he's 10 and 0. He's a massive ticket seller. But normally, his, his manager or promoter doesn't want him to go and gamble on a TV show yet. We're quite happy doing our little thing on our show, selling our 400 tickets. Thank you very much. Now, Dave from Manchester needs a payday. Dave from Manchester's got to take a risk. And our guys have got to say, yeah, I'll fight Dave from Manchester instead of Lucas from Poland. And there's nothing wrong with Lucas from Poland. From He's a lovely fella. What did you... Now... It's pithy and it's trite to say I was the first person to ever say that because I don't believe I was. Uh, if nothing else, I believe the promoters impacted knew before anyone else that this would be the likely consequence. But one of the things I find interesting is we're in a position where small hall boxing has become irrelevant because the big name promoters made it irrelevant. They would ridicule small hall boxers. Let's not forget that. Small hall boxers would be ridiculed. Small hall promoters would be ridiculed. And promoters would sooner have their guys sat on the shelf than boxing on small hall shows and showing support to that scene, which I've always found pretty strange because the two should work together. I use the rugby analogy. The, you know, if you, play in the, if you play in the top flight of rugby union and you can't get a game, you'll be loaned out to, the team and, to a team in the league below because it's more important that you play than that you're you know, at a prestigious institution and sat on the bench. And we need to change that in boxing. Guys need to fight regularly. And if it does mean that you take a, a Cody Davis and he does a Mo Pryor show in Cardiff, why not? That used to be the soul of boxing. And for some people who are newer to the sport, they won't understand that. It used to be that you could yo-yo between the small hall and the TV, and the TV scene quite comfortably. And I don't think you can do that anymore. I think the gap's too wide. You know, the last time we saw that in any meaningful way was when the universally accepted limit, you know, he's limited, right? Tommy Coyle is limited, but he was able to, to defeat Rakeem Noble with relative ease, which was a surprise to, to a lot of people when it shouldn't have been because the gap is vast. Now, and I can't explain what that gap is. And I don't know if it's that you're used to those sorts of occasions or that somehow you're getting a better quality of trainer or better quality of environment, that's the thing I find harder to believe. What I do believe is those occasions can phase a small hall guy because small hall guys literally show up, weigh in, relax, fight. That's what they do. There's no public workouts. There's no press conferences, no massive events, no big lights, nothing like that. So we need to look at that model. That model's kind of broken. And maybe MTK are the solution to that problem because they can bridge that gap between the small hall scene and the televised scene. And we need that fixed. And I would sooner take MTK dominating all non-televised boxing, well, non-mainstream televised boxing, at the expense of small hall promoters if it guaranteed that at the margins, the best small hall guys could just flip onto a TV scene and the TV guys not getting any airtime could just flip down onto a small hall scene. That's what I'd like to see. And, and so in that sense, Eddie's correct. But, you know, where was this ages ago? Where was this thinking? Where was Eddie Hearn trying to show leadership in, you know, as he likes to call himself, the biggest name in British boxing? Where was the leadership? You know, it took a, a tin pot podcast, as he'd describe it, to, to highlight what was obvious to everyone, that the small hall scene has been dying for a long time and with social distancing it's probably dead 
and the wealthy people involved in it will go off and do something else, maybe horse racing, who knows. Just thinking out loud, and I guess hearing Hearn's kind of grating voice has got me thinking. There's a useful thought experiment that can happen at a time like this. If, if we want to look at the viability of small hall boxing, let's just pose a simple thought experiment, or let's pose a challenge to a small hall promoter. Pull a 10-fight card together, and, okay, you can't sell tickets for it, that's fine. Have it available to pre-order on pay-per-view via whatever platform you want. Charge a fiver for it. Just do that, and let's see what the numbers do. I'd be intrigued to know what would happen if a Steve Goodwin, an Errol Johnson, um, a Carl Greaves, or a Dennis Hobson said, okay, look, I've got a 10-fight card here. And it might be that, you know, you just go, right, we just go get people fighting who are ready and who are in shape. So you might have like a, just think of examples, a Tommy Frank versus Joe Maposa. You might have a Linus Adolfia versus a Jermaine Brown. You might have a Jermaine Brown via Zach Chelly. You know, that sort, of, that sort of York Hallish level fight. Get 10 of those. Charge a fiver for it, because I think that's reasonable, 750 have it for pre-order because we want to know how many units this will do because right now people have no choice. It would be the only boxing in Britain that's available. Just put that out there and let's see what that does in terms of numbers because we need to start being realistic about where boxing's at. If boxing really is as big as the Bazinga numbers would tell you, the, the millions and millions of views. Think about that. The millions and millions of views who, from what I was told, are driven by fans wanting to see fights and reactions to fights. So let's give them some fights and let's see how fans react. Because if there are a million people watching KSI Logan Paul and watching their build-up, if this is actually true, are you legitimately telling me that 1% of those 10,000 people would not stump up a fiver? That's my question. Because if 10,000 people would not stump up a fiver for 10 evenly matched small hall fights, then boxing will get a reality check. And we'll, <laughs> we'll come back to the original conclusion. This is, this is a sport that is definitely marginal at best and is supported by a group of rather strange individuals. That's just the reality of it. But one thing I did want to touch on, and, and I give Coogan a hard time continuously for, for not checking Hearn on his bullshit. And I do. And I don't apologise for that because I think I'm not asking him to do anything other than state the obvious or just ask the most blindingly obvious questions sometimes. That's all we're asking him to do. You, know, you don't have to have researched Hearn for 20 years. Jesus, you've done every interview with him for the last 10 years. You don't even have to. Just ask really obvious questions because it stops him doing you know, ridiculous and childish shit like he tends to do. And, it, and I think this week was a prime example. Because I kind of feel like I've completed boxing anyway. Sorry? I kind of feel like I've completed boxing. So now let's see how good we really are because it was getting a little bit easy. You know, coming to the UK, wallop. Gave everyone a little spanking on the bottom, on the bottom. Went over to to 
USA, still work in progress, but completely drove people posse over there, completely ripped up the marketplace, went to Italy, Bongiorno, went over to Spain, Ola. So, yeah, we had more to do. But now, let's see how good we really are. Can I say one thing? You, as a promoter, cannot say you've completed boxing until you've helped make the Joshua Fury fight. Yeah, it was tongue-in-cheek, but... No, but it's you not. You, you mean it. You mean what no, you... No, you're right. It's not, actually. No, you, you are right. Yeah, it's not. But it's... <laughs> see, see how when Coogan checks him on his bullshit, the whole language, his whole dynamic changes. It's like, yeah, I was just joking. No, I wasn't. But Hearn's got away with those sort of stupid statements for a long time, and fans lap it up because a lot of fans involved in boxing don't care about reality. They care about their own feelings, and that's not wrong. You can care about how you feel about something. If you feel Eddie Hearn's an amazing guy, you're entitled to feel that way. If you don't want to have a logical basis for doing that, that's fine. It's slightly weird, slightly creepy, but it's on you. If that's what makes you feel like the man you want to be, the woman you want to be, the teenager you want to be, if looking at Eddie is what motivates you to be a better person, that's fine. The notion that Hearn is completed boxing? <laughs> if you really strip Hearn's career away, and we're, we're looking at a decade, right? The start point was pretty much, hey, Harrison, bust. Prize fighter, bit buzzy, but got shit after the first couple. Let's be honest, because people suss the hustle. And then, like, when you talk about real Eddie Hearn, what does that strip it down to? Foch goes one, Foch goes two, Brooke Golovkin, Joshua versus Klitschko. And that's pretty much it. You know, I know people say Joshua v. Ruiz one and two, but I think those were driven more by DAZN than they were by Matchroom, if I'm being brutally honest. And, you know, so when you say you've completed boxing, not really. Joshua's the one career that you seem to have created. Then I look at Bob, and Bob's delivered banger after banger. He's given us Crawford. I look at Heyman, who's given us Spence, who's done Mayweather-Pacquiao, who's done Mayweather-McGregor, who's done Mayweather-everyone, who's done Danny Garcia versus Sean Porter, um, who's done Spence v. Sean Porter, I mean Thurman versus Porter, Thurman versus Garcia. Fights that fans legitimately wanted to see. Fights that, that made sense at the top of their divisions. He's done that. De La Hoya's done what he's done with Canelo, Canelo Mayweather and so forth. There are guys who have delivered far more historic fights than Eddie Hearn. If ever someone's completed boxing, surely it's Oscar De La Hoya, right? I might be wrong on this. Feel free to correct me. But here's a man who won Olympic gold medal as an amateur, won multiple world championships and multiple weights as a boxer. As a manager, seemed to do the same thing. Hence the name Golden Boy. And as a promoter, he's killing Hearn on his own stable. Like, Eddie, remember when Eddie was bragging about the zone and how he had access to a billion? And then De La Hoya came up and said, all that money's virtual. I'm going to come with Canelo. We're going to take 365 mil off the top. The rest of it, you know, we'll throw to all our other guys like Ryan Garcia. And Hearn hasn't been able to match that energy. So... I'm glad Coogan checked him on that shit because I get bored of hearing him just say stuff unchallenged and kudos to Coogan for doing that, finally. 
But really, ah, that's enough hern bashing, man. It's the weekend. By the time you guys listen to this, it'll be the weekend. The thing, I guess, at the moment that we're all talking about is the the dropping, the, the almost the Chinese water torture of the Fury and Joshua talks have commenced. Now, I've heard this so many times that I'm almost surprised that the talks had ever stopped. Let's go all the way back to when Hearn was in Monaco. I think it was when Chisora fought, might have been Caballel. And Tyson was out there as well. And Hearn was courting Tyson. And what Tyson was doing was basically yanking Hearn's chain so he could get a better deal with Frank. Which, you know, fair play to him for, for hustling Hearn like that. But if you go back then, and people were asking Hearn questions of, do you see Joshua v. Fury as a 50-50 fight? And Hearn was like, no. You know, Joshua's the A-side and he brings everything. He brings the belts, he brings the media attention, he brings everything. It's a 70-30 fight if we're being generous. And now, just fast forward. Um, Fury's made miracles happen. He's defied the odds. He's, he's written himself into boxing history in a way that I don't believe Joshua has yet because Joshua hasn't got that redemption tale. I know people talk about, oh, he came back against Ruiz. But like I said to you before, you know, <laughs> Ruiz is basically a human space hopper who who happens to have quick hands, but to be honest, they barely get past his belly. So what's the point? Now, Fury now is the figure the British public wants to see do well, not Joshua, because Joshua had his chance after Klitschko. And like I've said about the quarantine period, the lockdown period, boxing let us down because it didn't give back at a time when fans were willing to be patient with them. Now think about this. Joshua V. Klitschko was three years ago. So for three years, we've said there are three big heavyweights in this division plus Dillian White. No disrespect to Dillian, but these are guys who've held belts. There are three of them. We want to see them fight each other. And we were always told that they'd never fight each other till 2020, 2021. Fury and Wilder made it happen in 2018. They were going to make it happen in 2019, but they eventually they made it happen in 2020. And in the meantime, Joshua's kind of gone off on this meandering road of mediocrity, fighting people who no one can ever convince me were any good. I'll never be convinced that these were world-level fighters. So now we come to a point where we're hearing that talks have started over the fight happening in Saudi at the end of the year, and you think, no. No, it's another example of the Hearn playbook. When you have nothing to talk about, you just say, look, we've started the talks about Fury versus Fury versus Joshua. And, and because he now realizes fans have got smart to this, you can't just say this. So now you caveat it by saying, well, obviously we need to speak to Wilder and we need to speak to Pulev to make sure that they're okay with this, which they're absolutely not. So... Where has this come from? Because Wilde has been absolutely clear that he's fighting Fury for a third time. And if he beats him, it might be a fourth time. Pulev has said he's not standing aside again. So, and this is the thing that boxing fans don't understand. Once you have contractual rights, which Pulev does as the mandatory, and I think they'd signed the contract to fight, but don't quote me on that. 
and Wilder has because he's already signed a contract that gives him contractual rights. Those rights have an economic value. Does Eddie Hearn really want to pay each man $5 million to stand to step aside? Is boxing that lucrative that you can throw money at people like that? I don't believe it is. I also don't believe Bob Arum needs to pull Pulev out. I think Pulev is a useful fighter. If you're going to kind of take miles off Joshua's clock, that would be good. Soften him up for when Fury gets hold of him. I fully understand that. And if you're wilder on that PBC side, on that US side, you want to get a belt back as quickly as possible because now you realise there's a guy out there that can beat you. You might want to win that belt back and cash out. Get your fight with Joshua. Be in and out of the game. And I say that just to say a very simple point. The amount of money it would cost to get Wilder and Pulev to step aside at the same time would render the fight uneconomic. It doesn't matter how much money Saudi throw. And incidentally, we still need to touch on why people are so quiet about the Saudis taking over Newcastle, but when they, you know, when they spirit off our heavyweight champion to Saudi, that seems to be a big issue. But, you know, let's park that for now. So, so what's really happening here? What's really happening here is that Wilder is away somewhere, recuperating, reflecting. I have no idea where Wilder is, but he is out there getting himself together but he's still in the public eye because he's fought this year. And he was in one of the more meaningful sporting moments of 2020, of which there will not be that many. Tyson Fury's come back to be the British darling. And as we understand, there can only be one big boxer sat on that throne. And right now it's Tyson Fury. So Hearn understands that Joshua needs to associate his name with Fury and not Pulev. People are not going to be interested in Joshua because of his relationship with Pulev. They're not. Fans don't care. They don't know who Pulev is. I mean, you could have Pulev next to Jamie Moore. You wouldn't know who was who. So what is this about? It's about just like when people used to attach their name to Joshua, Hearn is now attaching Joshua's name to Fury because that makes Joshua bigger because you're saying, well, that's where we're headed. In reality, it's probably not where we're headed for a long time. Because just to make that deal happen, you would have to convince Bob to waive his promotional rights for a certain amount of money. And that amount of money will not be small. Like You'd almost have to run that fight at a loss if you're the zone to make that deal happen. And just to, just to touch on this, what's really interesting is how when you hear these talks happening, and you hear about the cast of characters involved, you realise immediately how, how murky boxing can be. So just to be clear, Eddie Hearn is not really involved in the negotiations. He's kind of, but I think this will be left to the zone. You've got MTK in there, you've got Frank Warren in there, you've got Bob Arum in there, and God knows who else is involved in all of this. Probably Asif Valley, for God's sake. So you've got all of these guys, because it's their cash-out. For a lot of people in boxing, this is their cash-out moment. For DAZN, Fury v. Joshua, if that doesn't get you subscribers, your boxing experiment stops right there. You're done. You're, you're finished, you're through, you're washed up. That, boxing doesn't work. Boxing's not economic. If that doesn't drive up your subscriber base to where you want it to go, just wash your hands of boxing.
For MTK, it's payback for investing in Tyson, believing in Tyson. That's the word you've got to use. Believing in him and guiding him to this point. So kudos to them for, for seeing this vision. For Bob, same thing. For Frank, same thing. Fury helped bring Frank back when Hearn was giving him a kicking. And him signing to Frank Warren at the time was a big coup because that restored some of the balance. Now look at Frank. Frank's got the better heavyweight stable. You know, we don't talk about how we'd like to see Joe Joyce versus Dillian White. I'd love to see that fight. Why don't we talk about that? You know, we, we talk about Dillian fighting guys like Povetkin. Povetkin's washed up, done and through. Fight Joe Joyce. There's a challenge for you. Can you fight Joe Joyce? How, you know, can you, can you go at that pace? Because we've seen twice that the stamina was an issue. Can you go at Joe Joyce's pace? And can you do that when... I imagine the testing regimes will be serious now because there's scrutiny where there wasn't scrutiny before. But, but we digress. The reality is everyone's kind of benefited somehow. But this is that moment of if we can't cash out from this fight, we're wasting our time in the sport. And so I think deep down people are scared of that moment because they know what the truth is. They know that boxing's tiny. So they're scared. And so when you're scared like that, on both sides, I don't, I'm not even just going to blame Hearn at this point. I don't even think they want Fury to take this fight. I genuinely think they want Fury to do the, the Wilder fight, pull in another 20 million. Then maybe a Dillian fight, get, and then do the big fight. And I don't, so I'm not going to say this is Hearn's fault. Now we're in the point where this is just boxing, because it's a cash out fight. There's no other fight that will do that in boxing right now. And then it delays it enough that one of Dubois or Joyce will then be in a position to challenge. Then you can have your big domestic fight because that will be the next revenue source. So the fight's nowhere near happening. It doesn't suit anyone's agenda for this fight to happen now. It just doesn't. But it suits people's agenda to keep Joshua's name in there. And, you know, and indirectly it helps elevate Fury's name as well because now you're talking about how can Joshua beat Fury, not how can Fury beat Joshua? And we've got to accept that Joshua's now sat on top of the, of the heap in terms of British heavyweights. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. He's done well in this period, whereas I think Joshua's kind of fallen off. So it's all Hearn's doing. Hearn's just protecting his asset by keeping him relevant in the headlines. I just, like I've told, like I've told people before, like I've said on here before, until Joshua starts taking more risks with his career, in and out of the ring, he's hit an earnings ceiling. He can't get bigger than he is now. Someone around him has to tell him that. And I'm not saying this because I dislike Joshua. I'd like to see Joshua evolve. I'd like to see Joshua become a huge star. Because in and amongst all the stupid stuff he does for publicity, there's someone in there who's reasonably interesting. And I think... The last decade of Joshua would be an interesting documentary. That would be a good ESPN 30 for 30. It's just having Anthony Joshua talk candidly about the last 10 years because there hasn't been a story like it. I, I genuinely don't believe there's been a story like it where 10 years ago you were fighting guys like uh, is it Armin or Matthew Issa, I forget his name, but you're fighting these big lumps and these Joshua Qualies and Domak and Ladis 10 years ago. And now you're sat on the Mount Olympus of heavyweight boxing, of boxing in general. That's a documentary there. 
But because Joshua doesn't give us that, that bit extra, it's hard to invest in him as much as we want to. And I think that's going to be my thing for the rest of the year. Someone out there, give me a reason to invest emotionally in Joshua. That's all I want, and I'll be on board the train. But right now, we're not getting what we want. I just want to close up with some lighthearted things. So <laughs> O'Hara Davis and Anthony Fowler have been going head-to-head. -head. Like, Liverpool just never let O'Hara Davis live, and I don't understand why. Well, maybe I do, but probably a subject not to touch on. There's something acrid about that city, and I, I don't know what it is. And... I'm always conflicted with Liverpool. I love going to Liverpool. I love being in Liverpool when you're around the people, when you talk to them. They're fantastic people. Like, in the moment, Liverpool people are fantastic. They're awesome. But from a distance, man, they love to be victims. They love to be hard done by. And maybe that's what brings out the best in Liverpudlians. I don't know. They need to always have their backs against the wall. They always have to have something to prove. Fine. It just gets grating after a while. So we all know that the, the O'Hara Davis, Anthony Fowler thing started as, as a result of Devin Haney's ridiculous comments, which I discussed in a previous podcast. But now this thing's built up some energy and momentum. And you know, O'Hara doesn't need a second bite at something like this. So he's gone all in. Neither does Fowler. So they've both gone all in. And now we're talking about having a fight between a, a light welterweight and essentially a middleweight. Like, where are they going to meet? 150 pounds? Can Fowler make that? Because if he can, I think O'Hara will cause him all kinds of problems. But look, when it comes to this kind of period of time where it is kind of silly season, I can ride with this for a while, but I don't know where this is headed. But, you know, it's, it's energy where you're like, well, it's something different. But it's funny how Hearn gets himself involved in this. And I didn't really watch it enough to know whether O'Hara checked Eddie Hearn for being a snake when the pressure was on him. And I hope O'Hara did, because that's the sort of guy that I like to think O'Hara is. But then, is O'Hara about to re-sign with Eddie Hearn? I don't, I just, I don't know. But <laughs> it's all these shenanigans. And the second thing I wanted to touch on, and I'm just conscious that I probably got over my 30-minute limit. People talking about Mike Tyson could beat Deontay Wilder with six months of training, like, Oh. Fucking hell. Really? Really? When I talk to people my generation, like my friends, Big Junior, Big Linton, Big Dom, guys who are legit big men, physically big men, and we talk about, oh, yeah, we could just jump in the ring. What we re realise immediately is, no. And I don't know what it is. After a certain age and after a certain distance away from having taken punches, they just land differently, man. Like, they hurt. Punches hurt. So Mike looks good. Like, if anyone's seen the video clip of Mike hitting the pads, he looks quick, he looks sharp. But it's, can you even hold that for, can Mike Tyson hold that for three minutes? I don't think he can. Nor should he have to, like, he did that 34 years ago. Mike did what he was meant to do 34 years ago. We can't now say, oh, oh, Mike's 53, but he's still like the young Mike Tyson. Like, the young Mike Tyson would have still had trouble with Wilder. He would have beaten him, but he would have still had trouble because Mike had trouble with guys 
who could stay at range and choose not to engage, which Wilder's the master of. I know people say stuff like, well, Ortiz managed to get to him. Ortiz is a different kind of fight, and Ortiz is a southpaw. Mike would have got to him eventually, but it wouldn't have been easy. Now at 53, maybe 54 years old, you want to tell me Mike Tyson? 197-pound Mike Tyson can get to Wilder. That's absolutely crazy. But there are crackpot fans out there, and is it only boxing that attracts these types of weirdos? I have no idea. I genuinely don't know. But Mike couldn't. Mike can't come back and fight. He just can't. You might put him in with the Vander, but then you don't want to see that. You'd literally have to, you'd be disrespecting Mike by saying, Mike, you can do four two-minute rounds. And Mike, Mike is too proud to do that. So I think for an exhibition, for for charity, for a bit of a show, yeah, I mean, it would be lovely to see Mike. And it's good to see two things. One, Mike's still in good shape physically. Two, he's still in good shape mentally. And we praise that. But Mike's served his debt to boxing. His legacy is too great. I'm not saying he's one of the five greatest ever, but his legacy is still too great for boxing fans to be saying, ah, oh, he could beat Wilder like this. Mike understands the sport enough to know whatever he could throw at Wilder, he couldn't take coming back. That's what you lose when you get older. It's not that you can't hit people anymore. It's just that you don't want to get hit and it doesn't feel nice. When you're 25, yeah, it's whatever. Shrug it off. It doesn't feel like anything. You get older and it does. You know, we've had this. And I, I don't know if it's just that we're, we're deep into silly season, but we had Froch and Calzaghi coming back out. If I'm being brutally honest, the only person I want to see come out of retirement this year is Tony Bellew. I genuinely want to see Tony Bellew come out of retirement because he never really explored being a heavyweight. Now, I know he said the camp started to drain him and this, that, and the third, but I don't think he ever explored being a heavyweight. And I think there are enough small heavyweights that he could give trouble to. He could, he could have a meaningful fight with a Chisora. He could have a meaningful fight with a Taka. I, mean, he, I think he beats Joseph Parker. Does he beat Andy Ruiz? I don't want to see that. I think Ruiz would run over him. But someone like a Joseph Parker, I think Bellew gives all kinds of trouble to. So I'd quite happily see Bellew come out of retirement. I'm going to get stick for that. But if we are going to see someone come out of retirement, I'd rather see Bellew, not David. Because as good as David looks in shape now, he'd have to gain another 10 kilos, it would look like, as a minimum. But why would you do that? Like, he's having a happy life, man. He's, he's just enjoy life, I think. In some cases, enjoy life. And David looks like he's at peace with what he's achieved. I just always think Bellew's a guy that's born and bred to fight. And until he can find another outlet for that energy, the comeback is a question of when, not if. So I wanted to close out just both a bit of nostalgia. So I think it's 10 years ago today that Mayweather fought Shane Mosley at welterweight. Now, you have two guys facing each other who were arguably the two greatest lightweights of the last 25 years, 30 years, however you want to describe it. Yep. And that you talk about that when you talk about 135 pounds, you put those guys in your top 10 list. You know, could they have hung with guys like Barrera and Morales? Absolutely. 
And so at welterweight, they fight each other. And people genuinely thought Shane would beat Floyd because you know, Shane's a bigger guy and Shane was more experienced and so forth. But Floyd is Floyd. And apart from that second round where Floyd was a bit rocked but managed to see himself through the round, it was a pretty comprehensive win. Now, I think that was when the kind of we just want to see Floyd get beat thing started to pick up speed because people assumed that he was ducking Pacquiao, which I don't think was the case. But what it also did is it gave us one of the best HBO 24-7 series ever, number one. And number two, it gave us the greatest ever closing of HBO 24-7. Like, I still think the, the music that came with that is still mind-blowing even now. So I wanted to sign off by just remembering how, how that played out way back when and just going back to those days of Pretty Boy Floyd. You have elite fighters, and then you have guys that are special. And in this fight, you get a rare occasion where you see two special guys competing against each other. May 1st, I'm going to go out there and beat Floyd Mayweather and do what I do best. That's be smart, be sharp, and fight hard. And they say, um, may the best man win. Just a few miles from the Las Vegas Strip, you'll come across a place they call the Neon Graveyard. It is here that remnants of a city's past quietly come to rest. It is a reminder that history is merely a chronicle of replacement. No matter what they say, all fighters have an intimate relationship with inevitability. Beneath every expression, Every promise and every guarantee, they, more than anyone else, can sense their own mortality. It is a piece of self-knowledge that can be unnerving. One they combat in a remarkable range of ways. Brazenly. Stoically. Extravagantly. In quiet seclusion finding irreplaceable comfort surrounded by those who first nurtured their rise. Discovering new voices that invigorate their will. Two starkly different paths that have taken these two men to the same destination. from now, a new generation of champions will replace Floyd Mayweather and Shane Mosley. But tomorrow night, never will you see two men come so alive together. And it will be impossible to imagine them ever coming to rest so quietly.